So I'm not uh, trying to bust into JT's uh, preaching schedule, if you're English, uh, but uh, I, there was a verse that I've been thinking about for quite some time out of Colossians 1.18 that we are going to use to think about a subject that we should all give more thought to, and that is the preeminence of Christ. It's a big, fat, polished word that simply means first in rank, Okay. The preeminence of Christ, His absolute right to rule. So, Augustine said something that I think is important as we go into this this morning. And that is that Jesus Christ is not valued at all until He is valued above all. Now, who would disagree with that here? I would hope nobody. But I'm going to read it again. Jesus Christ is not valued at all Until he is valued above all. So you see there's no room for margin here. He either has all of your heart. Or he has none. There is a tension I know that fills our minds when we think about these things. Because we also know that we're not perfect people. And we fail. And many times... We do put other things in front of him. You have to think that every single time you allow your affections to precede him, you're not valuing him above all. Every single time. And certainly every single time that we sin, we're not valuing him above all because we're loving ourselves more. So... I love the sentiment from Augustine, and I think it's true, but it's something that we struggle with. Amen? We struggle with it. But yet, it's a theme from Scripture that we are supposed to pursue. So, Jesus has his absolute right to rule that he accomplished on the cross, that he consummated on his resurrection. He deserves the preeminence. And again, as we go through this message today, remember that he's not valued at all until he is valued above all. And how that plays out in your own individual life and mine, is going to, it's going to vary. It's going to be different. But it comes down literally to a moment-by-moment choice. If the Lord will reign in that moment or not. That's the struggle. That's the war. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to lightly touch on this uh, section of Scripture, and then JT can dress it up later when he preaches again. In Colossians chapter 1, let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse uh, 13 of chapter 1 and go to 18. But really, I'm really just wanting to focus on verse 18. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, 
For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And, verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Let's pray. Lord, as we tackle such a large verse, a section of verses that talk about Your absolute right to rule, to talk, that talks about Your value above all that is valued. God, help us to be willing to look inside ourselves and look around in our world today and ask ourselves this question. Do I value you above all? Is that reflected in my life? Lord, do we preach a gospel of victorious preeminence? And do we live like it's true? God, through the power of your word today, guide us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Preeminence. I I just really love the word, actually. It's, it's a beautifully big, large word that actually can have nothing above it. To be preeminent is to be first in rank above all others. Another word that we could use here is that of supremacy. The declarative message of verse 18 is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's supreme. That's master. Okay? If you read in the the above passages there, it says, In this Lord who has conveyed us out of darkness to light, it says that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, because He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean... He's the protocus, okay? He, he, He is the first of His only kind, because He always has been. Okay, you can't outrank him. You, you, there's literally nothing. And I like how the scripture qualifies down at the bottom here in verse 16. He, he, Paul gets into the issues of, of what actually he is supreme over. And it says, and he uses thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. So he's actually coming headlong at earthly authorities first. Thrones, kings, and that, that, those kinds of things. And then dominions, so, so national governments, uh, Sovereign nation states and all those kinds of things. But then he gets into the spiritual part of it. Principalities and powers. The Bible tells us elsewhere that we wrestle against these. Always. And he's above those too. So, so there's really, there's nothing anywhere that he's not preeminent over. First in rank. He is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning. And I like in the beginning. There in the Greek it's the word RK. We, we get the word ark from that. Archangel. Okay. Uh, an archetype. That means what? The chief. The big one. The highest one. And so we have then in this word preeminence. Exactly that. Preeminence. Supreme. Supremacy. So what I want to do is just take you on a survey, and then I'm going to geek out on you a little bit with some theology here in Matthew, so just bear with me. 
okay? Because there are actual places <laughs> in theology that you can really become, become kind of geeky, but it's really good, okay? So I, I want to share that with you. But let's look in Genesis. He is, the, he is preeminent in the, what's known as the Proto-Evangelium, which is another way of saying the first gospel, the first good news. Genesis 3.15 uh, it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He's talking to the devil. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. And in this, we have the first gospel being brought into the, into the mindset of humanity saying, you will be roundly defeated. You will... You will incur an inj- you will cause injury, but you will be crushed. He will crush your head. This sin that you've brought in, that's now spread to all men, therefore all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and, and measure of perfection. This proto-evangelium, this first gospel, listen, he is saying to both. Uh, and you know Adam was standing there going, why, that, was, that all happened fast. Okay. <laughs> and Eve is just, but then here's the enemy, and God is saying, I've dealt with this. I've dealt with it. Now you watch. You watch what I do. Okay. You won't be able to read this, but I can with these. Jesus as the Proto-Evangelium. It has also been argued that on the basis of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 3.15, Jews were already reading the seed of Eve as referring to a singular person who would crush the serpent. Now why is that significant and why is that important? Because in the last 150 years... We've come under the notion that it's seeds, plural, but it's one, Jesus. Now, what did we just say in Colossians 1.18? He is preeminent. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He needs no help. He is completely satisfied in himself. So... The Proto-Evangelium in Genesis declares the seed, singular, that Paul uh, fleshes out later in Galatians, that will crush the serpent's head. God will not couch to ask humanity, can you help me? And I'll I'll have you understand that the American, the Western church, the once bastion of orthodoxy and doctrine of the Reformation has since faded. And in fact, what's come in to replace it is a humanistic view of the deity of God. He can't quite lift it all. So he needs us. And that is heresy. Because at the end of that line of thinking, do you know what it is? God is dethroned and man is enthroned. 
You find that everywhere you have it and you get rid of it. Because what did Colossians 1.18 say? He is preeminent. Where does that leave you and I? Not preeminent. Okay? All right. And then he goes on, this goes on to write, this evidence has to do with the pronoun one uses with the word seed. I told you I'd get a little, little geeky, okay? Everyone's into pronouns these days, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, I don't... Sorry, Mickey just went by. Uh, this evidence has to do with the pronoun one uses with the word seed. In Hebrew, the word zera is masculine. So one would use the masculine pronoun he, whether one wanted to speak of one descendant or all of them. But in Greek, the word for seed is sperma. We talked about that out of 1 John. But this is a neutral term. So if one wants to use the word to refer to all the descendants, one follows it with the neuter personal pronoun it. In contrast, if one wants to use the word seed to refer to a single descendant, one uses a masculine or feminine pronoun, he or she. And in this passage, the Septuagint uses the masculine pronoun autos, indicating that seed refers to a single male descendant of Eve. Boom. Proto-evangelium. Boom. Preeminence. God doesn't need our help. And I think that is fascinating. When we go all the way back to Genesis, we find God's grace shed for us. And we see the supremacy of, of Jesus. This verse here in Genesis 3.15 proclaims that God's people will finally triumph over the serpent as it's reflected in 1 John 3.8. The seed of the woman is a collective noun indicating corporate victory. So, makes sense. If you have a king of kings and a lord of lords that is preeminent, that can't be upended by anything, then everything that he does upends everything that he doesn't and, and does not touch, right? So that means that darkness will never overcome the light. That's the victory of the gospel. That's when, wherever you were when you came to Jesus, even those of you who, who took the long road down the highway, you know, and you're like drifting over into the right-hand lane, okay, somewhere in that car of yours, okay, or on the creek bank or at the church service or, I don't know, on the tractor, you met up with the preeminent king. You know why? Because he came to you. You didn't help him out. You're dead. You're dead. And you have no clue that you're even dead. And he comes to you. He regenerates your mind. And suddenly you see. Who you are. And all the way from Genesis 3.15. To, to John 3.16. Jesus. This preeminent. King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior crushes 
Satan's head in your life. And now, those of us who are united by the blood of Christ have. Have it. Corporate victory. We have it. We're not going to have it. We have it. However, if left to ourselves, we cannot win this war. No, it took Jesus, Eve's seed par excellence, to deliver the crushing blow. And if we are in Him, we share in and extend His victory. So many verses we could read, and I, I just don't have time, but you cannot read the corpus of the New Testament and the Old Testament and not see that everything Jesus does is victorious. And that victory then is transferred to those for whom it is victorious for. In Exodus, this was really kind of something I was thinking. In uh, Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 and 21. Behold, God says, as they're fixing to head out to uh, inhabit the land. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. This is probably of, this is one of my most favorite verses because it's one of those verses that just puts me in awe. All the way back, we just went to Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. And here he is again. This Christophany. This Jesus in the Old Testament. Vern Porthris wrote a book called Theophany, actually. It's all about all these occasions in the Bible. It's a fascinating read. He goes, this angel of the Lord has divine attributes. We are dealing with a pre-incarnate Christ anticipating his incarnation. It is Christ who leads Israel through the wilderness. It is Jesus who is still leading Israel through the wilderness. The Israel of God, the church is being led through the wilderness today. He hasn't stopped his consistent message. He, he doesn't need our help. But he, he gathers a people to him, Jew and Gentile, and brings them together into one, that middle wall of separation being torn down. From every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Marching through the earth even now. Giving praise to the God of heaven. Giving glory to the Lord Jesus who, who, who paid their sin debt. Even so much so that in some places, as some of you well know, are being rounded up and arrested and killed because of their faith. But they're not losing. It's because they're winning that Satan is doing everything he can to shut them down and shut their mouth. Because the gospel is like fire in a dry Bermuda grass pasture. One spark and the whole thing goes up and they know it. So be careful how you view victory and loss. Because if you view it the way the world says, 
your lip will drag the floor. But if you view it the way your pre-incarnate king says, your, your preeminent king says, if you, if you view it the way Jesus says, then you will shout amen no matter what may they do to this body. Isn't that what Jesus talked about? Don't be afraid of those who can do damage to your body, but to him who can actually cast spirit and soul into hell, or both soul and body into hell. That's what... So, remember, this isn't just a capricious game that kind of ebbs and flows in favor of God sometimes, in favor of the devil sometimes. No. He's one. And our preeminent king is stomping out his enemies. I love this. I'm going to send an angel before you. Who's that? Oh, you've heard of him before. He's the seed. Oh. I see. He's going to bring you into the place which I've prepared. Oh, what is that? Well, that's what Hebrews talks about, the land of rest. The typology of Canaan is our reality in Christ. There's a new world going to be made here. A, and it's not, here's the interesting thing even into that. This one's going to be cleansed and remade new. It's not going to be destroyed like as in obliterated. I want, to, I want to get you that. The first world was covered by water, but it never disappeared. It was just renewed. This one will be renewed where righteousness will dwell. It's already on that path. This is it. And, and you know what? God has involved us to be in part of that, to be in that process. Yeah, it's a gospel of victory. This whole thing that we see there playing out with with Jesus there in the Exodus is what happens every day in your Christian life. Do you ever think about it like that? He's leading you up out of your Egypt, setting you free from your sin. And he's taking you further and further into the promised land, which is the deeper confines of his of his heart. His love. And one day, this new heavens and this new earth. Yeah. Well, what about in Joshua then? Here he is again. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? It's a reasonable question in battle. So he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Does this sound familiar? Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Who is this man? He's the proto-evangelium. 
He is the angel in the wilderness. He's almighty God. We're going to talk about that next week. He's everywhere. We see a line drawn from Genesis to maps. One story. One savior. One people. Seamless. And it's consistent. This figure here that we just read in this passage is first identified as a man, according to his appearance. The subsequent interchange includes several elements. The man identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua falls on his face and offers worship. And the man pronounces that the place is holy. It is reasonable, writes Vern Poitras, to infer that the human-like figure is not a created angel, but the Lord himself. This temporary appearance foreshadows the incarnation and Christ's role as divine warrior fighting against the kingdom of Satan. Some things to think about then as you're thinking about your life. and So here we are on this side of the cross. Here we are looking back and we can go back and study the Old Testament and see how God was faithful in dealing with His chosen people. And now we go on into where we are here. This Jesus that has grafted us into that tree, that olive tree of Israel. He's just as faithful to us as He is to them. Let's look at some things. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. It says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His hot displeasure. And in his wrath. And he will say. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will, dec- I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise O kings. Be instructed you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. That sounds like a very triumphant and preeminent king to me. I don't see where we lose there. No, I, I, don't, I don't see it. It's not in there. That's what I get for being funny. In Psalm 72, there's another one.
And I, and I just, I like reading these, so please try to read along with me just in your Bibles you have them. But give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. How long is that? Forever. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Verse 8, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish, and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, and it will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem the life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On top of the mountains its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel who does these wondrous things and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Leaves little room for doubt on how this turns out. Right? Finally, one last one here in Psalms. Psalm 110. And I'm talking about the preeminence of the rule of Jesus. The absolute right to rule. This is one of my favorites. I have lots of favorites. In the Bible. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That means that Jesus, even now, is ruling in the midst of his enemies while he's putting them under his feet. It says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. I wonder who that could be. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have a, the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head, which is just all but saying, and it is saying, he has preeminence. That's what all these things have in common. The absolute preeminent dominion and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about in Matthew? Now we're making the leap. We're now in the New Covenant, the New Testament. What about... In Matthew, 
One of the things that I read recently, and I'll get into here in a second, just blowed my mind, but I want to share this real quick. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it simply says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and you're reading through your Bible in a year, right? And you get to that and you think, oh my goodness, look at all of those baguettes, <laughs> Right? How can this possibly be advantageous for my spiritual development? And then, of course, you, read, you find someone that comes as a guest speaker of the church that has memorized that verbatim, the whole front chapter. And I'm like, wow, because I didn't do that. <clears throat> but what's amazing here is in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book in the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genesis 22:18 says, "In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is what God's covenant was to Abraham. He says, "In your seed." Now we already know from Genesis 3:15 that that is singular, right? It's not talking about a nation of people. He's talking about a singular heir. That we will be that everyone will be blessed in. In Galatians 3:16 it says now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made he does not say and to seeds as of many Paul writes but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. Now I'm going to nerd out with you a little. I have paper This is called The Land Promise and God's Redemptive Plan by Oren Martin. So, the shape of the New Testament provides a helpful link regarding the relationship between the Old Testament expectation of restoration and its fulfillment. Hamilton writes, From the beginning, Matthew's genealogy and narratives of the early life of Jesus established connections between Jesus and the story of Israel at both prophetic and typological levels. So we have prophecy concerning him and we have types concerning him. We read, we read it all through the canon. Matthew begins, and this is the technical part, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's genealogy is significant because the phrase book of the genealogy is found in only two other places in the Old Testament. Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1. Thus Matthew opens by intentionally linking his own plot into the larger narrative that reaches back to the beginning. These two occurrences in the biblical storyline then are important to consider in order to understand Matthew's use of what he means when he says the book of the genealogy. Genesis 2.4, the first account that this happens, because again there's only three places. The first of this is in Genesis 2.4 gives the account of God's creation of the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And Genesis 5.1 begins a new genealogical tree after the fall that emphasizes the continuation of humanity and a recreation through the Noahic covenant, God's covenant to Noah. Thus, it is momentous that Matthew 1.1 is only the third place in the Scriptures where this phrase is used. 
Uh, G.K. Beale, I'll read him some. He, he writes this, Matthew's point in using this phrase is to make clear that he is narrating the record of the new age, the new creation launched by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and ending in his death and resurrection. In other words, Matthew's introduction, just his introduction, we're just dealing with one verse, okay? Matthew's introduction connects Jesus to the first creation, the post-fall recreation, where the image of God is proliferated, and now to the commencement of a new beginning, a new creation. The, this point leads a couple of guys that made a translation to translate Matthew 1.1 like this. The book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. In effect, Matthew sets out with a new book of origins, with a new history of God's action in the world and in humanity's salvation. They write, it is as if he were writing the Bible anew. Through his genealogy, then, Matthew is weaving together key threads from the Old Testament. That is, he advances new creation themes through the genealogy of the Messiah and indicates the inaugural fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And then if you go through and read the rest, it basically says this in the end. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And do you want to know why? It starts with, it's a word, it starts with P. Preeminence. So let's see if we can all catch up here real, real quick. If we have anything in our lives that take the place of Jesus in rank. He is not valued above all. If at any moment. And we all struggle with that, right? We do. So we go to the cross. We cling to our Savior and we say, Lord, even this too. Yes, even that too. We go to our preeminent King. And who He is as our supreme fulfillment of all of God's promises. Everything from the Savior that's to come to all of the typologies that were, that were made out to the, nation, the physical nation of Israel, all fulfilled in Jesus. None of them are put above Jesus. None of them are waiting on Jesus. He is preeminent and first over them all. And has perfected what he's done. And now, what are we doing? We're waiting on him to come back. We're waiting on him to defeat his enemies. We're, we are waiting on him to call out his elect. We are serving with him in doing what it is we do by being his servants and his people. By being his ambassadors. By preaching his gospel. By, by singing His praises. By depending upon him, on him in our lives to show the proof of the Christian life. is not so much, I mean it is in what we say, but it's really proven in what we do. Right? Put my readings back on here. <clears throat> so, what is preeminence then? In each case, in Matthew... There is no mere parallel being drawn. There is eschatological transcendence. That Jesus, for example, 
is not merely another great Solomon. He is greater than Solomon. Likewise, he is greater than the temple. Greater than Jonah. In the, in the midst of all this, the clear implication is that he is also David's greater son. In fact, this is precisely Jesus' point in Matthew 20, 22, 45. Further, he is Lord even of the Sabbath. Similarly, Jesus is not merely a son of Abraham, privileges that is. He is the son of Abraham par excellence. The one in whom the patriarchal promises reached their goal. He is not simply a representative of Israel. He is the true Israel. His name is Joshua. But he is greater than his forebear and brings a greater deliverance. For he shall save his people from their sins. Moreover, it would have been very wrong to erect booths for Moses and Elijah. Talking about the Mount of Transfiguration here. And Jesus. These two other men, great as they were, deserve no equal place with Jesus. Hear him was the word from heaven. He is greater than Elijah and greater than Moses, greater than the prophets and even the law itself. Don't build back the wall. Don't, don't go back that direction. The entire book of Hebrews is about that. Don't go back. In Ephesians 1, 20 and 23. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Colossians says he is above all principality, powers and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And notice this part. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What big language. Notice it didn't say, and he is putting, or he's about to put, and he's about to give him. Sometime. And, and, and it will be. No. And he put all things under his feet. Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. What is the word, the one word that you can apply to that verse? preeminence so Christmas will be here in eight days what's it about is it better be huh I'm going to challenge all of you to take a mental inventory of how Christmas is reflected in your home And if it declares the preeminent victory of Christ. Or. Attention. A little bit of this. A little bit of Jesus. So that we can have a consistent message we preach as a church. 
going into 2024. Now, I don't know how many there's going to be. I'm resigned to the fact there may be very many, 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 many more. I care about my grandkids and I care about my great-grandkids and I'm going to plant trees. And I'm going to pray for my great-grandkids' souls to be saved and used of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do things because it matters to my preeminent king as he is ruling and reigning. I'm going to get a long view. Do you know how weird that is to get a long view when it comes to the things of God? We've been taught so long to have a short view right to the end of our nose. But what about the long view? I'm going to get a long view. You know why? Because he's preeminent. And because I believe him. No matter what the world says. No matter what kind of goofy headlines there are. No matter what they've lowered themselves to do now. I don't, whatever's being blown up doesn't matter. To me, in the sense that my king reigns. What did he ask us to do? He asked us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He asked us to watch. He asked us to be ready. And he asked us to live. Live like he's preeminent. Amen. Now some of you today may heard this message. And you heard this message. Christ came to save sinners. Yes. And we are all part of that. And there is not a single race or ethnicity on this earth that he is not saving people. What about you? Is the Lord of glory saying it is time. You're mine. And where you are. Maybe you're home later. You deal with your creator. You say, God, I have nothing. I am nothing. I'm a sinner. Save me. Take this mess of a life and transform it to a bouquet of praise. For as long as you give me breath, I will serve you and cling to him. Church, cling to Him. Live your faith. Live your, live your victorious King. JT's going to play. Have a moment of just taking this in and dealing with it. Whatever God calls you to do, me the, the altar's open to come and pray. Take a moment. Just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you regarding this.